If you have a Bible, you can open to the passage we just read from Luke chapter 2. You can also find it uh, printed in the insert there. This familiar scene in Bethlehem. Before we start, let me pray. Father, thank you that you have called us into this place, into a marvelous light that is shown into the darkness. Now may the words of my mouth and the meditations of all of our hearts be acceptable in your sight, that we would see and behold this light that is shown into the world and has changed the whole world and is still changing the whole world. We ask this in Jesus' powerful name. Amen. A little town of Bethlehem, how still we see the lay lie. <clears throat> the words paint this picture that's almost like a Thomas Kincaid painting, if you know who he is. If you don't, don't worry about it. It seems almost unrealistic, and in many ways, I think it is. The scene of a young couple expecting a child arriving in a city, more of a town, that is already famous as the birthplace of King David. The promised hope of the uh, birth of a Messiah, another king, was expected in this place, and yet the town remains small, but not insignificant, especially during this time because people from around the region had flocked to this town because the Romans who were in control had called people to come and be registered in the place of their ancestors. We don't know a lot about this story. Why did Mary and Joseph travel at this particular time? Did they have some flexibility to travel before or after the birth? Did the birth come unexpectedly early? What exactly were the accommodations that they found when there was no room for them at the inn? Many people have speculated, but a few things we do know for sure. It was not a peaceful time for Mary and Joseph. The labor pangs had come on. She was expecting a child and needed a place to deliver it. Somehow no one was able or willing to give them the place that they need. It's a familiar story, and sometimes we're tempted to try to bring creative new ideas for it. I still remember the first time I taught on this as we gathered as a new about-to-plant church in our living room and trying to be creative and say, well, maybe, maybe they weren't actually in a barn. And there's theories about that, and you can read about that. But regardless of the situation where they, were, where they were actually placed and how clean the manger was. And even if the owner of the house or the inn or wherever they had found this manger was actively helping them clean up the space, knowing this, this woman was about to deliver a baby, which I'd like to think was happening. The people of that culture were certainly known for hospitality. We know that Mary had come with some preparation for so she had the swaddling clothes, the familiar clothes 
that people wrapped babies in. It was unusual that a baby would be laid in a manger, but it was not at all unusual that he or she would be wrapped in swaddling clothes. There was a comfort in that. For the, the purpose of swaddling clothes in and of themselves is to give a baby comfort. You wrap them tight around the baby and they feel like there's a security. And it helps, oftentimes, not always, to bring a calm and an ability to sleep. The flailing arms and legs distract and keep the baby awake, but the swaddling clothes help them sleep. Surely Mary didn't lay a baby down in a manger that was filled with some type of excrement. Surely this mother who was respected and father who was respected They were called righteous and chosen by God, not because they were perfect, but because they were righteous and faithful. And have proven throughout the pregnancy that that was who they were. And these young parents, inexperienced, full of questions, surely, full of fear, as is evidenced by Mary and Joseph's response when the angels approached them. Yet somehow seem to have a calm to them when the baby actually is born. Mary sits there and it says that she treasured up all of these things in her heart. As shepherds came to visit, as they garnered attention from various people in the region, it's not insignificant that God would choose the city of Bethlehem with a message that comes from angels and then greetings that come from shepherds. The wise men come after that, as most of you know, probably not there on the birth night, to be the event for the birth of the king of the universe, the long-awaited Messiah. So let's just look for a moment at the significance of this town of Bethlehem, the message from the angels, and then the attention they get from the shepherds. Last week we mentioned, you remember some of you, those of you who are here, we mentioned that there were three offices that Jesus comes to fulfill. They were Old Testament positions of authority in the kingdom of God. They were the prophet, the priest, and the king. They were held generally by different people, though sometimes some people held two offices. And the fulfillment of this king who would be born was that this one king, the Messiah, Jesus, would fill all three offices. And so Bethlehem, this small town yet full of attention, full of activity, was significant For this one primary thing, and that was that it was the birthplace of King David, and it was the expected birthplace of a Messiah. We read about it earlier. When the wise men do come, they come to the city of Jerusalem, and the king there, King Herod, summons wise men and advisors, and they go to the Scriptures, and the Scriptures point them to say, Where has this baby been born? Well, it's of course in Bethlehem, the birthplace of kings. And the wise men continue to follow the star miraculously. By the way, the star, 
The star is not some explainable star that emerged in the west and so the wise men from the east could follow it. The star changes direction. The wise men come from the east, come to Jerusalem, and then they have to turn around and go the other way to find Bethlehem. This was a miraculous star, a light shining in the darkness that led them to the city of Bethlehem that proved that Jesus held the office of king. That Jesus was this hoped-for king. But it might have gone off with little fanfare had God Himself not sent His messengers in form of angels to come and speak to the prophets, or to the shepherds, I mean, to the shepherds to inform them that this miracle had occurred. For though the birth of a baby is not quiet, it seems to have garnered little other attention in the city. Angels are messengers just as prophets are messengers. And so we start to see in this little story of Christmas that there is an example. It's a little bit loose, but an example of this prophet, priest, and king, or king, prophet, king in Bethlehem, prophet in the voice of the angels, and then the shepherds we'll talk about in a minute. The angels, like the prophets, spoke what was God's will. They were God's messengers. They had no authority of themselves, no liberties to take. They were speaking what God had sent them to tell them. The word angel is oftentimes translated messenger, herald. So God sends his heralds, his messengers, to these shepherds to proclaim this truth. And the shepherds, the shepherds take the message and they act on it. They're out in the fields outside of the city, the more crowded areas. And it says that they, they leave their fields and they go into the city. Again, we're not talking about some bustling metropolis, relatively small. But they go into the place where all the dwellings are gathered together and grouped for protection. And they seek out this stable, this barn, this structure that's not meant for people to dwell in. And they come and they bring worship to this child. The shepherds, the shepherds of the people were the hope of the people hearing the message of the gospel. The message of God's salvation. The prophets in the Old Testament, we've been looking at Zechariah and Micah, the prophets of the Old Testament oftentimes brought words of warning, but never was the warning so dire as when they came to warn the shepherds themselves who had strayed away from worshiping God. The shepherds had an important role, not just to tend sheep, but in the kingdom of God, the economy of God, the shepherds were to shepherd the people of God. The shepherds were to lead the people. And so for these shepherds to come and worship this Christ child was an act of leadership. They were the first ones to come. They were demonstrating faithfulness to God. They were demonstrating the right response to God. When the angels appeared, they were filled with fear. 
But when the angels spoke their words, the shepherds responded. When they heard the words of these prophets in one sense from God, the shepherds responded and brought worship to the people. We don't know much about what the shepherds did when they went away. Maybe they told a bunch of people. It's hard to say. That would have been the right response as well. For this king has been born. This king has been born. Go and worship the king. Entering in, not into the stillness of the night, but entering into the chaos of the bustling city. The king was born who would bring peace to the world. How do we come to the king? How do we come to Jesus, now grown? Do we come to him for answers to our problems? Oftentimes we do. Oftentimes we need problems in our lives to remind us to come back to Jesus or to go to him. And those problems should be a reminder that we can't solve problems for ourselves, at least not all of our problems. But do we come to Jesus like Santa Claus with a list of wants, but absent of any worship? Do we come to Jesus like Santa Claus with a list of wants and absent of any worship? When we come with that, our view of who Jesus is shrinks. Picture something just growing smaller and smaller and smaller and smaller. And sometimes we think if Jesus would just give us this one thing that we want, then we'll think far greater of him. But when there is no love and affection for the one that we come and ask something of, when there's only selfish ambition or overwhelming selfish ambition, wanting more than we want to give, it shrinks our view of who Jesus is and it limits our ability to love him in return. Now you may think this shrinks who Jesus is, but notice I didn't say that. For nothing that we can do can shrink Jesus' love for us. You may have this vision of a small baby in your mind right now, especially of Christmas. And I want you to take that image of the small baby because it's an image that God gives us. But I want you to take that and allow that image to grow as the child grew And grow in your life over the next days and even over the next year and throughout your life. And keep in your mind, is my view of Jesus shrinking? Like that story of the man who was born as an old man and then grew young. Is my image of Jesus shrinking, growing smaller? Is my image of Jesus growing? Do I think of his power and his authority? His goodness in guiding me for my life and guiding us as his church in ever-increasing ways. 
Or do I come to Jesus asking him for greater prosperity materially in wealth or other possessions? Do I come to him asking simply for healing from my pain or anxiety or suffering? These are good requests. But if there are only requests, then Jesus becomes little more than a a vending machine. And we, we start to view our life as only worthy of his love if we've built up enough credits, enough money, and our good work to feed into the vending machine to give him something to give us something back for. Fear is a powerful motivator. If you're viewing your goodness and your good deeds as money to feed the vending machine so that God will give you something back, you are living in the captivity of fear. And it can drive you hard and fast in a lot of ways. Fear can make us run from danger and it can also make us work hard for fear of poverty or other things. Fear can drive us to be responsive and for our attention to be alert. But fear is ultimately utterly incapable of producing love and affection. Two people expressed a desire to worship Jesus when he was born, or two groups of people. Did you notice it when we read it earlier? The wise men came offering gifts, desiring to find the child that they would worship him. And they came to King Herod and asked where they could find this king who had been born. And what did Herod say? Tell me where he is. Show me where he is so that I can go and worship him. There's a drastically different motivation between these two people who expressed a desire to worship. Of course, Herod wasn't intending to worship. But the wise men came with the hope of a promise that a great king would bring deliverance. They came to worship out of a delight and love for this king, an affection for this king. Herod feared the power of this little baby. It was a threat to his own power. It was impossible. It was impossible for Herod to rule as king if another more hoped for king was in his midst or in the midst of the country. When you come to Jesus, we come with all kinds of fears that Jesus is going to take over our lives. We come with a desire like Herod and a fear that Jesus is going to do too much, rearrange too much in our lives. We should all identify at one and the same time with both the wise men's desire for affection and love, but also Herod's fear that Jesus is going to do too much. Again, I believe it was C.S. Lewis who described the type of change that Jesus desires to do in our lives. 
You see, we come to Jesus wanting him to rearrange the furniture a little bit. Tidy things up. Make things more attractive in our lives for others. That they would see that we're a better person because we know Jesus. But Jesus comes and wants to tear down the whole dwelling. And rebuild the house into something far more glorious. And change our motivations. The motivation to have Jesus come and live in our house. Change our motivations that when Jesus comes at the inopportune time, when we're already crowded, that we won't put him out in the stable, but let him in to the master bedroom. To give him the primary place in our life. But Jesus didn't come demanding as a king. Or even with parents who had the power and authority to demand a place to stay in Bethlehem. He has that power. He has that authority, but at Christmas he set that authority aside and he came in humbly into the city of Bethlehem and into the world in a very similar way that he comes to each of us. And he says, will you give me a place to stay? To be born in your life. The Gospel of John picks up on this language. We are to be born again. And let Jesus tear down the house and rebuild it far more glorious than ever before. In all the chaos of your Christmas right now, in the busyness and the shopping you may be planning to do this afternoon, let this time be a pause to view this king in a new way who has come into the world to change the world one person at a time, and that includes you. A baby born with power and in ultimate humility for us to follow. Let's pray. Oh, Jesus, may our view of you continue to grow in our hearts and minds. May we never be so crowded that we don't have space or time for you. For into the city you were born, that you would bring salvation not only to that place, but to the whole world. May we experience that in new and powerful ways during this Christmas season. We ask in your name. Amen.